Hello, hello, hello. This is Tooth Be Toe. This is Dr. Walter Aka. Hi, my name is Leroy Horton. And Dr. as you can Kyle see, Gumpers. yep, as you can see, we got a whole group here. We got Dr. Alfredo. Alfredo hey, listen, let me be honest. Like, if, if you're looking and you see Elise, that's actually his fiance, not him. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I don't want people calling us talking about you called him Alfredo and it says Elise on there. <laughs> it's, it's 2023, bro. Ain't nobody hey, judging. Hey, yeah, yeah. Hey, don't, don't get that me canceled. my fiance. Don't get me canceled. Well, you got the invitation for the wedding already? Oh, man, I'm excited, bro. I'm, I'm real right, excited. I'll... Look, you know what? Let me let me just say real quick, you know, I've, we Alfredo and I went to school together, dental school together. And one thing that I know is if he's going to throw a party, I better come prepared. I better come with like a three. Suit. It's going to be, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. That's it. So, so, you know, I'm going to have to probably go get a suit. Kyle, I need, I might need to borrow Kyle's suit, right, Kyle? <laughs> <laughs> nah, good luck. Perfect. Ready to come. Ready to go. Let's do it. No, but, uh, but the reason why we got Dr. Alfredo um on, on here is because, he, if, if, if we're talking about Kyle living in, you know, the rural parts of Pennsylvania, Alfredo basically lives in Miami. And as you know, Miami is very glitz and glamour and so forth, but he did something very different. He basically went from owning his own practice, taking everything, right? Because remember Kyle, we talked about this. Like if you look at the previous episode, Kyle is cutting back and going fee for service. Yep. When you opened up, you basically had to say, I need to get my name out there. So I'm, I got to take everything. 100%. Right. So we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about what made you basically say, this is not for me. And now <laughs> I'm going to, now you're with a group who is basically high end aesthetic, like well-known, you know, in multiple States and so forth. So we're going to get to that as well, but okay. let's start off with you. You get out of school. You know, we're all excited. They lied to us. We move on with our lives. <laughs> <laughs> they said we were going to be amazing, and then we get out of school, and and it's you know 2009, and and little did we know that the housing market had just crashed. Right, the housing market crashed, and you basically say, "I'm going to go ahead a few years later and open your own practice." To Florida, where everything went down. Right. So, so you basically open your own practice. Go from there. What happened? So. Right off the bat, let's start before the genesis of it all. We graduated dental school in 09. I moved back to Miami and, you know, I worked for a while as an associate in a few offices. The way the work dynamic work uh, is done here in Miami is you can't just get a full-time job right out of school for the most part because one, practices don't have the patient base to even support that. So I was working I remember three days a week in one office, two days a week in another, and there was a third because some days I worked half days and then I would go to another office. And I did that for a little while <clears throat> until I was tired of even that going on. I was working six, almost seven days a week just to make ends meet at that time because, you know, we had an economic crisis that little did we all know in dental school studying for boards was even happening. You know, we were in this different state of mind. So I find a practice that I buy into, and I unfortunately at, I want to say I was, what, 28-ish years old, I didn't do my due diligence. And these are things that most people were out of school. They're excited to buy their own office. They're going to be their own boss. And then I actually bought an office that they oversold. They I overpaid for it, right? Um, and it was an HMO, Medicaid for children's office, and some PPO. I would say the majority of that office was 
a bunch of HMO patients where you would get your monthly check, which said you needed to treat 500 people for $10, you know, and ultimately that gets very taxing on somebody, especially when you're out of school training, you know, you're not at that level yet. Cause I would say you really need about five years to understand the profession, 10 years to become very, very good at it and longer to become an expert. So it really, really took a toll on me doing that. However, I was passionate. I wanted a deep dive in, get my name out there and get the reps. Even if that meant, you know, seeing 75 patients in a day, which that's one of my records. I'm not happy to say that, but that's true. And people say, well, how do you treat 75 people in a day properly? And it's being meticulous. And even when I was treating those patients, my work ethic and my technique and my passion for my craft never faltered. I always thought if I'm going to treat anyone, I'm going to treat them like if they were my parent, no matter what position, right? No matter what insurance, because that never mattered to me. What mattered to me was changing their lives through dentistry, because in our profession, unfortunately, a lot of patients' mindsets are skewed. So I spent a lot Can, of can I ask you a, a quick question for the yeah, layperson? Absolutely. I think um, someone's at home, they get their benefits package, they open up the pamphlet. They really don't know what the difference between PPO, HMO, and, and so forth is, right? Um, HMO or capitation plans have a, uh, a benefit initially to a practitioner that's really trying to get started. Sure. Can you tell the layperson exactly what that means and why that may not be what, you know, either any of us would choose for ourselves would be a HMO plan now that we know how the industry works. So can you explain that to the layperson sure. real quick? So in an HMO capitation, you're getting a check. Let's give you an example of a number two to $3,000 within that per month for whatever group or insurance plan you're in. And that has to encompass a list of people that could be 50 people, but it could be a thousand people, at which point you need to treat at a severely reduced rate. So when you're looking at costs of disposables in a practice or you're just your overhead alone, it doesn't really help that practitioner as far as that, because you're ultimately getting a cleaning, for example, for $10. Now that capitation divided by let's say a thousand people doesn't really add up. So what the practitioner does initially is use it kind of like what I describe as a faucet. You're going to get more people coming in. Hopefully that practitioner does really, really good work, talks them about different insurance plans or trying to go out of network or having them go network within their own office to then keep that patient or retain that patient by the treatment they have rendered. That's the mindset that most people should think of it. But most offices, unfortunately, when they're in that role, um, don't have that communication. And then secondarily, more importantly, they don't treat those patients the way they should. 98% of the time, not everyone, right? Yeah. But um, those patients never convert and they're never educated and they stay so that that practitioner stays in that never ending circle. So it's, it's continuous, but in the beginning, I think for a practice that's looking to get workflow in and not just sit there twiddling their thumbs and hoping that money's coming through the door. Sure, especially if it's a practice that's struggling and depending on the area, depending on demographics, all of that matters 
um, as far as what you're doing with that. But it's really to get patients in the door and mm-hmm. having some sort of cash flow. Right. Well, I'm you glad you know. said that. And I appreciate you saying that you, you treat everybody the same. Because you know, when I had insurance at some point, it was at a at this chain dental place that took capitation because it was my my wife's uh, insurance to the state. And what we found is before I knew the industry, you go in for your exam, and they didn't have an opening for a cleaning until like ten months out. Yeah. Right? And then when that ten months was coming up, you get a call like, "Hey, we got to reschedule." It was like another three, and mm-hmm. I realized like, oh. They get their monthly check regardless. Regardless. They're trying to not see me. 100%. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So So I'm I'm glad you said that you treated them different because a lot of people don't know that that's what could be a motivating factor. They deserve, every person deserves to have good dentistry, quality work done, no matter what it is, right? And I took pride in that for the point where when I was seeing my Medicaid patients, which notoriously underpay their providers, if that at all. I had plenty of times as an associate that I was seeing Medicaid patients that an extraction was $25. The ROI isn't there, right? The risk and reward is not there. There's, it's just not there, unfortunately. However, you need to do right by that person if you're going to do that. If you're going to choose to treat that person, you're going to treat them well, no matter what. Unfortunately, like we all know in our profession, there's good dentists and there's bad dentists, Right. And there's people that stick to moral or ethical codes and others that don't. Unfortunately, that exists in every field. So um, it's important to treat everyone just. And what I did is instead of doing that every 10 months, right? Because that is something that they do do. They push them out. um, Is that I still saw them. And guess what? Some of those patients I still see to this day as a fee-for-service provider. And they're high school teachers, they're cops, they're firefighters, they have great jobs, they're good people, and they just love the way I treated them. They decided to stay, and now they see me as a fee-for-service practitioner years later, right? So I think there's there's a case to be made that no matter what insurance plan you're taking, if you treat the patients correctly, you could always have that conversation because once they develop trust in you, they're not going to just leave. Right. Because then you have to redevelop that trust and then re go over. Do you think they're going to do work? No. And some of those are some of my best referral sources, as we all know here. You know, no matter what you do in social media or what have you, still word of mouth is king. And obviously, Google reviews, if your patients really like you, they put a Google review. That's pretty much where we're at in this industry. Right. So, quick question. Yeah. Uh, this might be getting in the weeds a little bit, but going out of network with an HMO uh, plan, what does that timeline look like? Because um, whenever I did it with PPO plans, I the big one, Delta, I went out of network. My plan was for a whole year to talk to the patient so I can hit them twice at two recall visits, um, give them a letter the first time, give this to your HR director, see if you can get on a different plan. Uh, second time around, um, if you're going to be in, stay with this plan, this is the, the responsibilities that are going to be, this is how it's going to look. What does that look like when you're on an HMO plan? Cause that, since it's a little bit different, how do you go out of network? I guess, I guess it's, it's hard for me to truly answer your question because when I sold the office, I just kind of like sold it to the next person. Okay. So you just left. Yeah. You just left. I kind of wrote my cards. I called all my patients, told them where I was going. 
and then like we should. So uh, a great thing, even for PPOs, for example, because we did this in our practice currently, when you're letting go of, like, say, Delta, which, which we all know why we've all left Delta, I'm not trying to talk badly, but it is what it is. Um, you can talk badly. It's fine. <laughs> it, it's not. So, <laughs> but um, we all, as the providing dentists for our patients, had that conversation with our patients as to why we left the insurance provider. What does that mean for you? what we could do to maximize any benefits. Are we going to take out a network benefits? Or are we going to stick with their co-payments so that they can still continue seeing us? I mean, there's so much that you can do, but the biggest key is going to be having the provider call the patient themselves and explain the why, and then how can we go about continuing our relationship? And I think that allowed us to have retention. I think my numbers may be off, but I think that when we let go of Delta, we retained over 85% of our patient base. So it wasn't like we had uh, astronomic loss, right? But it's because every provider did their due diligence and did those phone calls. Not the treatment coordinator, not the office manager. No, me, the provider. Why? Because you are the one that they trust. Oh, let me let me continue with the story of um your office. So you basically bought a practice and how long did you stay in there and with that practice? And when did you know that, hey, this is just not for you? OK, so. Around year five of me practicing, I realized that I really, really loved cosmetic dentistry. And, and this uh, is this is five years of your own practice. Four or five practice. years of. Yeah. Owning your own practice. Years. OK. And. um. I said to myself, I'm going to take as much CE as possible. And it's something that I regret not doing in the beginning. So a lot of my mentee docs that I talk to, I tell them, you graduate, you take advantage of that two-year discount. You go. And then I give them a list. And while we had a podcast years ago on that exact topic. So <clears throat> there's a formula to it. And then you take all these courses and then you're finally there and you're doing bread and butter dentistry a single crown, or unfortunately in Miami, we have a lot of transient patients. So they'll come to you and they'll be like, all right, I broke my tooth. I need an endo crown. This is the fee. Oh, I'm going to get it done in Ecuador. Oh, I'm going to get it done in Peru. I'm going to get it done in Brazil. And that gets hard after a period of time. And just doing quadrant MODs, as we all know, are not the most fun to do every single day. I didn't see myself <clears throat> doing a whole career of that. I said to myself, if I have to do this every day, I'm going to jump shit because it's not what I wanted to be. And Walter, you know that from even when we were in school, like I was not that kind of person. I wanted to always grow and, and expand and be the best that I could be in what I'm doing. So I took as much C as possible. And here I am trying to treatment plan full mouth cases when realistically, you know that 99% of my patient base there, there was no way, you know, but right. you have to tell them what's up. Like you have to talk to them. And I feel, and I get this a lot with patients that come in and then they, they accept treatment that the conversation was never had because of fear. And ultimately that's a different story. But what led me out of my office wall to answer your question directly was I wasn't practicing the dentistry that I knew, A, I was capable of and that I was passionate about. 
And then I knew that if I continued on that route, I would have burnout, which happens to all of us that get put in situations, right? So it's it was me trying to avoid the burnout that got me out of that situation. And I said to myself, I remember one day I woke up and I told my office manager, hey, by the way, um, I'm moving to Tampa. I found a practice that does only cosmetic dentistry. I'm going to work there three days a week and we're going to open up twice a day. And that's what it was. And I traveled from Tampa to Miami for a year and a half every week back and forth until I sold the office. So wow. it took you how long to sell the office? About a year and a half. Wow. So no one wanted it or you just couldn't find the right buyer? I couldn't find the right buyer because at that time, the location that I was at was still under development. Now it's condos and houses, buildings everywhere. But at that time, I mean, when I bought it, well, across the street, it was basically strawberry fields. So there was nothing out there, you know, and now it's fully developed. There was a big developer that came in and basically... Uh, got that whole place bumping. It's it's crazy now if you even drive over there. So eventually someone saw the potential in the practice, knew I wanted out, and that was that. <clears throat> How did you find that person? Um, Just through dental real estate brokers. You know what I mean? So there were, we have various in the state that are excellent. Yeah, okay. It wasn't somebody you were posting stuff on your own. It was going through a broker. Yeah, yeah. It's just so much easier. Yeah, especially if you're living in another city, owning a practice in another city and going back and forth. I didn't have the time to do that because I would literally work in my office in Tampa Monday, Tuesday, drive down, work all day Wednesday, drive back Thursday morning and then work Friday, Thursday, Friday in Tampa. And at the time I had hired an associate to work in the Miami office like a couple of days. So it wasn't just one day a week. Um but it was a very stressful time. There was a lot of drives and a lot of self-thought. Yeah. You mentioned that there are still some several patients from the HMO plans that continue to see you as a fee-for-service provider, but you had sold that office. Was there any non-compete clauses that were set up with your with the buyer that um, prevented that from happening or challenged those patients that wanted to continue to see you? Great question. That only happened years later. Okay. Because so, I had moved to Tampa fully for gotcha. about three years. Okay. And they eventually knew that I was living in Tampa. So I had a few that would come visit me in Tampa. And at that point, there's no non-compete. I didn't, you know, you right. can't tell somebody not to drive all the way over there. Right. Um, and then, <clears throat> you know, after I joined Spodak, some of them stayed and some of them, you know, didn't because it's still a drive and it just depends over time. Right. All right. So you you mentioned something because we've been doing a number of podcasts with very successful um, clinicians that are doing more high end and more advanced stuff. And one of the mm -hmm. common themes we see is this internal drive and motivation. Right. You just knew you were meant for something at a higher um, that demanded a higher uh, expectation of your skill set. Right. Mm -hmm. But you also had an associate. And one of the things I ran into when I had an associates or no, numerous associates, it was they feel like they're being fed the, the drill and fill mm. and you're hoarding all the fun stuff for yourself. Sure. And I try to tell them like, oh, I put my time in just like you're putting your time in now. Mm. 
What conversations have you had or if you've had to have with associates or people that are up and coming, they want to jump from zero to full mouth reconstruction overnight. Mm -hmm. And they're looking at you like, well, how come you not let me eat? So so for me directly, that really didn't occur because when I hired the associate is because I was already gone. Right. So um, I hired that person just to kind of help fill the void in the practice when I wasn't working those days. And I was never in the belief of taking their patients away. Right. Um, I've had that happen to me. Right. As an associate doc <clears throat> in practices where I increase their gross production 35 percent within a year then a year later 55 percent and then you're doing the endos the extractions the fillings and when it came down to the final aesthetic part of the case the office manager will be like by the way um the patient feels more comfortable seeing x and i'm like uh i i don't i call bs i call bullshit right so you know that kind of stuff always drew a fire in me to not want to do that. However, now in clinical practice at where I'm at, I'm the lead doc within the practice of sport identical group. It's teaching everyone to know you got to be perfect doing single unit crowns. I mean, those margins need to be perfect every time. Then you got to be perfect doing quadrant dentistry. Perfect every time before you get into the rest and having a full broad knowledge spectrum of how to manage complications when they arise. The biggest problem is people get their feet wet and then they think they could sprint before they could crawl and they get themselves into trouble. And then fixing those troubles gets very, very complicated, right? So I think it's you having an understanding of how to do bread and butter dentistry very, very well, and then taking as much CE as possible to get you to a level of understanding where you know what to do if something breaks, or you know what to do when that patient calls upset, and you know what to do when they're a class three and you're trying to jump in and their jaw hurts, why did that happen, how to fix it, how to correct it on the, on the moment's notice. And I think that takes time in dentistry. I don't think that you're just one year out boom, doing full mouth rehabs because you have the gift of good hands or that your professor said you had good hands, right? I think that you have a, have a fundamental knowledge of what's happening with that patient comprehensively, holistically, perio, endo, oral surgery, implants, and then you could get into that world, you know? Because what if you prep something and something goes awry and you're the only one there and no one's there to take you? You got to be able to handle those situations. So, I think that they need to be able to crawl first and then sprint later once they're able to walk properly and steadfast and building that trust because that takes time, right? And it does take, I would, in my opinion, it takes a solid 10 years of doing something to become an expert at it. Solid 10 years of you doing it. And in full mouth cases, it could take up to 10 cases before you get really comfortable at doing it. And then it's just like second nature. Right. But, you know, you know, I remember those first couple of FMRs I ever did. You're nervous, Nelly, even after taking spear, coys and everything else. You're like, oh, what is this? What if something breaks? You know, but you have to kind of go through that. But I had already done the rest. You know what I mean? I had already mastered the rest. So luckily for me, knock on wood, I never had those issues because I abided by the rules and I was very strict on following the formulas that worked.
You Let know? me ask you this question. Um, so one thing that is 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 key is you said you have to take uh, continue education. Yes, and we all agree on that. I think everybody here agrees on that. But here's the problem: if you come out of school and you have five hundred thousand dollars worth of debt, and yeah. these continue education courses are expensive, right? <laughs> you had a practice, so you basically had. I'm guessing, you know, like business loans. Yes. That, right. And now you're taking all these classes, which are also expensive. Did that scare you at one point when you realized how much money you owed and how much money you were spending? Yes. And then, and then you're leaving your practice too. You're also leaving your practice. I get that. And right? that's, that's a hard part, right? Because you're, you're taking time off. But here's what I tell everybody. It's an investment in yourself, right? So if you take that $10,000 course, whatever it may be, Maxi, uh, Mish, Picos, and you're learning something new, right? Let's say it costs you 10000 but then you do two patients that would have, you could have potentially gained that back. And now you have another tool in your toolkit that you could use forever. I think investing in yourself and not buying the Mercedes, not buying the Kristen Louboutins, not buying their Hermes bag, not buying you know the Louis Vuitton wallet. I think that if you do that in the beginning, then you could have the rest because you're building yourself up for later success. But the way the mindset is, is that we're students, we're broke, we're eating ramen noodles. I want to have the good stuff. I want to get out there and get a nice car. I want to get out there and go to nice restaurants instead of saying, you know what? I'm going to sit tight for a couple of years and take as much CE as possible to learn my craft better so that then I could produce higher dentistry. Because if you don't see the higher end dentistry, you're not going to do the higher end dentistry because you can't diagnose it. And more importantly, you can't treat it. So you're never going to go up the mountain of learning how to do higher end dentistry because you never even got yourself there. And uh, you have you, to were you a, a first generation doc? Yes. What do you think? Because I know you mentioned that you, you feel you probably overpaid for your first practice. Right? Yes. And then we're all going to school with, you know, and I don't know how you guys' schools was, but mine, it was like a little, probably more than half of my classmates' parents were dentists and parents' parents were dentists. And so yeah. um, for those of us who are first geners that really didn't have someone that we could just turn to the left or to the right and say, hey, how do you work this contract? How, how do I spec out an office? How do I talk to the contractor? How do you build a net? Um, how do you get the resources of mentorship? Uh, and guidance to be able to maybe get a start that's a bit more, um, I don't know, equitable than what you fell into and what a lot of us fell into in the beginning as first geners. I, I think it's it's being open to having conversations with other dentists. I feel that and I, I speak from experience when I remember in the beginning of my career when I would go to like CE events or summits or conferences, you know, you're kind of scared to talk to other doctors so you kind of have to eventually get out of that zone and then have conversations with older docs that have been doing it find mentors i think that's super super important and something that now that i have people under my belt that i take care of i love it i love educating i love telling them where i made mistakes how to avoid them and i think it's finding yourself a mentor no matter where it's at whether it's a local study club right? That's a great place to start. There are Seattle study clubs, Spear study clubs. 
Invisalign study clubs, go to one of those to get yourself set up, finding other docs and creating a relationship with docs around your community, around your neighborhood. And what could that be? That could be you just doing guerrilla marketing, old school fashion, knock on the door, box a, a bag of goodies with your name and car and introducing yourself. The problem is a lot of people don't want to do that because we're competition, right? Instead of being uh, colleagues and helping each other all grow as a unit, which is a different topic. And that's a topic which coincides with group practice. Cause I also had to go through the, I used to be a solo practitioner and now I'm in a group practice issue. Right. And that's a yeah. So talk about that group practice that you're in. What's your, you, you mentioned you're the lead dentist there. Yeah. Um, what's your role there? Uh, what, if any ownership do you have, how did you decide on group practice coming from uh, that private practice ownership model you were in? So when I was in Tampa, I was kind of, I'll get to the genesis of how I got there. Um, I work at Spodak Dental Group owned by Dr. Craig Spodak, which is, has a very big uh, podcast as well, Bulletproof Dental Practice. Um, I not, used to, they're not as they're not as good as ours, of course. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they, I used to listen to the podcast on my way to different offices in Tampa, and then one day, um, I'm working at like a few offices in the middle of nowhere, doing surgeries and all of whatnot. And he says he's losing two of his associates. And uh, I remember I didn't even hesitate. I pulled the car over, sent my resume. And within like a day, we had a virtual meeting and I drove down the Delray Beach. And when you see the facility, you know, 18 operatories, 60 employees, it's 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 massive. It's it's like a dental hospital done right with great culture, great people. And there's 10 docs, 60 employees, 60 staff. There's eight hygienists we're looking for. We're currently looking for more and then eventually learning the group practice mode, which took some bumps and bruises along the way. That was difficult for me because it was kind of, I was kind of hardheaded and stern in my old ways. And luckily Craig has become a mentor and a friend and he and I have really grown together side by side. So to answer one of your questions, I'm in a partnership track where we're, we're working on those partnership items. And um, as far as the leads in the office are chosen by the department. So that's voted upon by each department completely. So the assistants all vote on who leads them. The doctors all vote on who leads them. And there's a lot of responsibilities that go with that, right? Because now you're taking on administrative roles, which I love, honestly. And that took time, right? That took time to develop. Um, but the transition to me was a rocky one. It wasn't like a smooth transition, to be honest with you. Well, so here's a question. I guess mentally, you go from being the boss, you're the one that controls for everything, right? Mm -hmm. What you order, you know, what you pay people and so forth, to now you're a part of a group with somebody that now is your boss. Mm -hmm. Tell us how that mentality switch was for you and how difficult or easy was that was that? Oh, in the beginning, I'll be honest, it was difficult, 100%. But it takes time to realize the value that you can contribute to an organization when you see an organization that's run correctly. And that took a long time. And then you're also seeing someone lead a group of six individuals. And then you're like, you know, 
I should learn a thing or two. Instead of being stubborn, look back and be like, that person had to go through a growth phase too, which he did. And he's talked about this freely in the podcast. Um, so it, it's, I listen to, I, I read a lot of John C. Maxwell on leadership and you have to go through levels of growth in order to lead people. There's positional leaders like a McDonald's manager that screams at their people. Those people will never outgrow that position. But it's when you're able to listen, be empathetic, understand people, understand the culture, and try to rise everyone above you. There's a famous quote that a rising tide floats all ships. That's when things magic happens. That's when organizations believe in the culture. And that's when businesses flourish. So it did take, it was very difficult for me in the beginning but as i got mentored and understood and talked to people and took lessons of hard knocks just getting slammed people being like you're an asshole and just understanding that and seeing looking at myself now versus who i was three years ago i'm a different person because you're constantly trying to grow and better yourself you know unfortunately some people just don't do that um, I think it's ultimately being able to listen to constructive criticism to better yourself, which then double downs. Everybody around you will, will it's a trickle-down effect that will help the whole organization if they see you grow as a leader. You know, Right. But, but Doc, it's 2023, and everybody is on this hustle culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you look at all these seminars that people are putting on, it's this notion of not being your own boss is somehow demonized in our current age, mm-hmm. right? And you just spelled out some very valuable things that you can actually continue to learn being a part of a program mm-hmm. that could potentially lead to partnership or whoever knows, maybe you break out on your own again later on. But what do you say to the people that are looking at you that saying, listen, man, you're, you're a director, you're managing all these people, you're putting in all this work. And you're building up someone else's equity. Why would you do well, that? How, how do you respond to that? I, I, I'm very so happy you asked that question. Because there's that question is twofold. One, you are working directly with people. We work directly with people on a daily basis. If you know how to manage your team, you can very easily manage your patients. One. Two, I have a lot of docs there when you go to summits, and, you know, I've gone through a couple of Craig's Bulletproof Summits and you talk to doctors and you'll see them be like, oh, I own, I own, I'm an associate, you know, head down there. They feel ashamed in a way that they're an associate. I had this conversation in my last podcast with Dental Talk 360. And what they don't realize is I've had many docs that you could ask them, what's your P&L, Right. And when they look at their numbers, they're making less than an associate. So, and it's one of those questions where you look at those P&Ls and you have to ask that person, hey, do you really love owning an office? Do you really love it when your compressor breaks or the AC goes or Janet in the front desk decided to quit because you didn't give her her 25 cent raise or any of these items that exist? Because... Alfredo is doing a million in product and collections and at his percentage rate is crushing you that owns your office. You know, percentages matter, right? 
You can make 30% in a practice being a million dollar associate and you're easily making more than nine, eight, a good 85% of practitioners that own their offices. Why? Because their overheads are too high. Or secondarily, they don't even know their numbers. Who didn't know their numbers back when he owned his office? This guy. You best believe I know my numbers now because I treat my practice within a practice, right? And that answers your question. My practice is a practice within a practice. And that's the culture that we bestow on all our doctors. You know, don't treat it like Craig Spodak is your boss and you're working on your Spodak. No, I'm Dr. Alfredo Raus that owns his practice within the practice of Spodak Dental Group. Because at the end of the day, my work product is my work product. You know, you have to be passionate about what you're putting out. You know, promote yourself, which vicariously promotes a company. Yes, but then it lets you to be fed. And in my situation, I have a higher rate of seeing patients that will accept treatment on full mouth cases because I see different styles of patients and different economic statuses because of the practice I'm in. That's a fact, right? You're dropping so you, gems right now, man. You have to understand that. So you can have the practitioner that owns his office. That's proud. I own my office. I did $1 million. And you say, what's your overhead? And they're like 85%. And I was like, you make less than I do. Facts. Facts. So, and, and that's hard for them to swallow when they hear that. Because they have this pride that they need to own something in order to have something. No, you can have your chip on the table on something greater and still have your chip on the table. Or there's some people, I know friends of mine that are highly successful dentists, want nothing to do with owning an office. They don't want that stress. And I'm talking about high producers, people producing 150, 175K a month as associates, collections. They want nothing to do with ownership. Because what ends up happening, even if you're a high collecting dentists and you don't own a business, and this will be a follow-up to that. Let's say you want to retire and you want to go private equity and you're, you're capped out. You're collecting 2 million, but you yourself did 87% of that. Hygiene wasn't really involved that much. And then private equity is like, okay, cool. You don't own a business. You own a job because you never made a business. You are the business. Without you, the office is worth nothing. Right? So now you're stuck. You'll so just to, just to explain it to people that don't understand, uh, if if you're selling your practice, uh, you have the option to sell out to a dental service or organization, a corporate entity, um, and they look at it as who can they bring in to replace you. And when you're that high producing doc, there's not a lot of people they can bring in as a single doctor to replace you, make that same production. So they mm. might have to bring in two or three doctors and that cuts into the bottom line and makes it a not a, as profitable of a business to buy. Or or you ultimately get married to that DSO or whatever. Because sometimes right. they say, we're going to pay you 40% up front of what we promised we were going to pay you, but you got to stick around for 10 years yep. until we reach it. And then we'll give you the rest after. And that's also a problem that most people don't see on the contracts, right? So ultimately, you got to know what you want. And you got to be fulfilled in what you do, whether that's owning your office, being an associate. 
But I feel like ultimately it's doing the dentistry that makes you happy, like waking up every day and saying, you know what, I'm so happy I chose this profession because I, for a long time, very honestly, didn't feel that way. And for once in the past, I would say in the past five to six years, I finally feel that way. And I've been practicing 14 something years. So can you talk about your work-life balance? Because most doctors are, I got to go into the office. I got to put these hours in. I'm the only provider. I'm the, the owner of this practice. I step away. Production goes away. No income coming in. Um, so that's a lot, adds a lot of extra stress. You're very passionate about dentistry. So I'm sure dentistry is a huge part of what fulfills you from what you're saying, but, uh, outside of, if you want to get away from the office, how easy is that? Uh, does that create additional stress for you stepping away or is that, you know, is it, um, relaxing to step away and you don't have to worry about that? I think as long as you do your due diligence of following up with your labs, if you have a big case, having that communication done, communicating with your patients after, I, I call every patient or text every patient that I know of. It makes life very, very easy because they have direct access. I use my cell phone and to be honest, they never really call me. People are always like, why use your cell phone? I was like, they don't call you. Like they are, they, they, patients do not want to bother you, but it's giving them that ability to have, know that they have me at any moment's notice is very important to me because that solves a lot of emergency problems, right? So that limits the amount of emergencies I see because the, hey doc, that feeling is a little tender. What are your thoughts? I talked to them, what's going on? And that limits the amount of chair time that I'm wasting on limited that I could have just had that call, right? Or if you did a big case and all of a sudden their uncle is a dentist in Alaska and saw and wanted to see their x-rays, you know, you limit these calls. But work-life balance for my first years were difficult because I was working six to seven days a week. Um, now my current practice, I'm working four days a week. And I've noticed that at four days, you're more productive than at five days. And I feel like and some, I have docs that work three days and are still producing 100K a month. You know, it just depends on what you want, you know, and then you can make that time available. You know, I wake up every day at five in the morning, go train at the gym because I realize that after work, after a full day of dentistry, you know, dentistry is taxing physically and emotionally and mentally. So I didn't have that enthusiasm anymore to train and work out in the evenings, but I did it. I do it now in the morning so I can spend time with my fiance and spend time with family, right? So you kind of have to divide the pie. What's important to you within that pie? Do you want to train? Create room for it. Do you want to cycle, cook, whatever it is? I still come home after work and I cook because I'm, I love cooking, right? So it's it's understanding what matters to you and creating that time because I feel like that's in every aspect of life whether it's a relationship or anything sports if you're passionate about something and you and it makes you content and fulfilled in life you will make time for it but dentistry do you need to work 12 hour days no you do not I feel like you're doing yourself a disservice if you do because you're going to run into burnout here's a I question for you as well um so when you're looking at this, right, you said, okay, so I worked, you saw, you had every insurance, 
And now you're in this practice with Spodak and you're basically doing fee for service, right? Mm -hmm. What do you think he did right in order to get to this point where now he's basically has a business versus what you had to go through? Does that make sense? Like looking at both situations, because you've been in both situations, looking at both situations, what have you learned that he actually did right? So he had a vision and I think creating a vision board of what you want in life, it's kind of like crazy when you hear the story, but, and I think it was 2008, I might be incorrect on the time. uh, He wrote exactly how he visioned the office to be. And in 2013, he put that to work and he actually made it happen. He took me risks. But, but Alfredo, honestly, like I could, I can envision myself to be Superman. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be Superman. You feel Uh, me? Like, so, so what did he do? Say what? Combination of luck and a combination of being. Okay, that's it. Like, what did he actually, did he take classes? You know what I mean? Like, what do you think looking now, what do you think he actually did different from you? comprehensive dentistry he did all of that taking all the courses like i said having a broad spectrum knowledge also his father owning the practice since the 70s before him and then he just there it is the practice yeah he pivoted it that's it and that sounds like see that's what i was trying to get at was like you went in by yourself he has somebody that he basically was running a marathon and then they gave him a, a 10 yard i'm sorry 10 mile head start Versus you having to start the beginning, right? But, that knowledge that came so, with it. Even so, taking the risk of, you know, taking out all these very large amounts of money sums, build that office and create what it was, right. takes risk because his dad's office wasn't anywhere near that size. Right, right. So, right. and then thinking that, and hopefully it works out. Let me put all these specialists and doctors into one location you know, instead of what most people do, which is buy smaller offices everywhere, he just focused on one big one, right? So what he did right in that situation is taking all this EMB and very, very good clinician that, to be honest with you, patients love him so much to this day, you know, and he's a very good people person. He's a great speaker. He's great with people. He has a gift of being able to communicate with people. And I think that's one of his big talents, Okay, so he's obviously a very charismatic person, and he's yep. someone who has able to be very good at talent acquisition, right? Because he was able to garner someone like yourself, who's obviously very passionate, very, um, you can easily articulate and express not only your passion for dentistry, but your passion for uh, providing a service to patients, mm-hmm. creating a team environment. That's awesome, right? If you can not only be talented, but be sur- surround yourself with talent. Right. What about that do you think has made a difference in your ability to not just grow as an associate, um, but then, you know, kind of model that same behavior whilst still staying in your individual flavor and your own personality and your own likes and dislikes? Or do you have to, you know, and not, not to be disrespectful, do you have to be a part of the cult mm. or can you maintain individuality within a a system that seems to have its own culture. Yeah, I feel like everyone brings in their own juice. You know what I mean? Everyone has their own swag. Like every team, every doctor team have my own assistant, Brandon. He's he's awesome. You know, he and I have such a fun dynamic. And but everyone practices differently. Everyone has their own swag that also is 
under the umbrella of the practice. But I feel that it makes me better, honestly, because you're looking at, it's like a melting pot. So kind of like, you know, if you live in New York or me in Miami, that I'm surrounded by all these cultures, when you're surrounded by different people that act differently, think differently, there's so much to learn, right? Like if you're doing a procedure and you're seeing somebody else doing the same procedure, you want, I kind of go towards, I want to learn your tricks so that I could like get something out of it. But I'm also a constant learner, you know, like I take CE like too much. So it just depends on the person's mentality. Some people, it can be a problem because they'll feel that, yes, it's, you know, the culture and it's, you know, they don't want to be a part of it. But ultimately, those kind of people just weed themselves out anyway because they don't, those those kind of people don't want to be in that kind of environment where they see the potential of what is done when like-minded people could help grow a community and help patients as a whole, right? Because what, what's awesome about it is the hygiene department, I trust them implicitly. Those group of women are fantastic. And without them, we don't got, you know, they're the motor, they're the heartbeat of the practice, right? And I tell that to them all the time. But unfortunately, there's people that want to be their own person or they don't, they want to talk badly or poorly. Unfortunately, in a bigger office like that, they're going to get found out because people talk and, you know, rumors happen. But for the most part, if you take the time to be in there and see that what we're doing is to better the patients around you, which then go hand in hand, the better the practice does, the more patient flow we get, the better the reviews, the more patients you're going to see, the more money you're going to generate on your own, right? You know, obviously the practice grows with it, but I don't think of it that way. I think of it, I'm helping for a better cause because my biggest issue is that I see so many unhappy doctors. And because of that, <clears throat> our patients around us don't get the treatments they deserve. And it's giving dentistry, it's been giving dentistry a bad name for a long, long time. And if I have one goal in life is to prove that every person that sits in my chair, that dentistry is an amazing profession and so much good could be done from it. If done correctly under the right person, right. And under the right mindset and under the right facility, it's, it's, it's all cohesive and it's a team, you know, even if you had a smaller office with one receptionist, one office manager, one hygienist, that's your team, right? Unfortunately, we live in a mindset where the doctor is the head boss and they don't really matter as much. Whereas what you should do is raise your people up and then they'll believe in you. And then they'll, when that patient goes away from the room and says, is he really that good? They'll say, yeah, he's fantastic. <laughs> And that's the mindset that, unfortunately, a lot of doctors don't see. Raise your people. Make them believe the good that you're doing within the community, within your practice. And everyone grows. Everyone's going to eat. There's enough mouths. There's enough problems in this world. We will all feed each other. And helping the community out, you know, don't get yourself, as a dentist, don't get yourself in a sticky situation if you don't know what you're doing. Refer it out to that specialist, you know. Refer it out to the oral surgeon, to the perio, to the endo. Because you know what? You do good by them. They're going to see cases and it's going to go back. Can't tell you how many referrals I get all the time from specialists.
Right. Okay. So, so you were Robin in the beginning of your career, right? Robin's a, he's a superhero, but he's a sidekick. Yeah. Right. Limited skill, limited power. You invested in yourself. Now you're Superman, right? Your lay person might look at it and say, yeah, you're Superman. Wait, but... wait, 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 wait. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> shouldn't have been, shouldn't it have been Robin Batman. and Batman. <laughs> Well, first of all, yeah. Batman ain't nothing but a rich guy that beats up on drugs. Uh, all I'm street. saying is that that so, analogy went left. DC okay, Comics and Alfredo's got well. some biceps over there, so I'm calling DC him Superman. Comics, <laughs> DC Comics would also say that Superman would whoop Batman up. But I <laughs> so, so you're Superman now. Um, but what do you say to the people that would say, all right, well, yeah, you've gotten this skill set. You, you've gotten all this uh, personal uh, growth, but now your average person can't afford you, mm-hmm. right? Um, is that the truth? Mm-hmm. And what can you do even now that you've gotten this success to still be a part of that community you came from that you want to be a resource to, um, given where you're at in life now? That's a great question. So one, I always try to, we all have to eat in this room. Right. And we're all going to set our fees according to where we're at as far as education, because let's be honest, the fees are set as far as your knowledge on a subject, how much you do a subject and the time you're willing to put in to make that perfect. Right. That is very important. I call that similar to when you go and buy a handbag that was masterly crafted by somebody at a big designing store that was done by hand as opposed to a one that's manufactured in a factory right you're making sure that every step along that path is done perfectly even through master ceramics right you go all the way down that line so yeah the fees could get higher however i'm not going to not see them right i'm not going to not have that conversation Because one, you need to show the patient why they should choose you, why you need to basically prove your worth, right? Show them through your book of work, through as a collective, what you've done, what you've accomplished as far as patients, so they can see your skill set. And then two, have them trust you and believe that you're going to do right by them. That's one. So can some patients unfortunately not afford X amount of of fee, sure. I mean, that's everything, you know. Yeah, I wanna I wanna have a Ferrari, but I can't afford one. You know what I'm saying? It's the same, right? So, but how do you answer your second part of that question? And I feel that that's when mentorship really works. Is you mentor people that are younger, people that are developing their skill sets and teaching them how to do things correctly. And then that could help them then see that patient. And you know what I do? I go sit in the room with my mentees on a Saturday and I sit in there and watch them do those FMR preps and impressions. And guess what? They didn't see me, but you best believe I saw every single step in that room. Right. And they paid a completely discounted fee, but I feel that it's giving back to the younger gens and teaching them how to do it correctly and giving them something to aspire to that then they could treat other people and then that trickles down because then you by service of teaching, mentoring, 
educating then goes to the next doc and the next doc and the next doc. You know, not everybody can afford APA, right? Let's be honest. But they can afford his associates because they learn from him. Okay, let me um, wrap up here by um, by saying this one. I want to appreciate you for taking the time to uh, actually you and Kyle. I appreciate you, you guys, bro. No, you guys are you guys are way ahead of us when it comes to how late it is over there. So I appreciate both of you guys. Um, but man, I, I want to say I want to ask you one thing, right? A lot of um, these young kids will go on social media and and they'll see the work that you do and they'll see, you know, these um, we'll call them influencers. Right. And they're talking about, yeah, that's what I want to be. I don't want to do the, you know, PPO. I don't want to do the HMO. I want to get to that level and I want to be fee for service. Tell them realistically what the dark side of, <laughs> oh, uh, you know, uh, fee for service looks like when it comes to patient expectation, oh, when it comes to so, expectation on you. Yeah. You need to deliver. You need to be perfect's not a good word to say in dentistry because nothing's perfect, right? But you need to go above and beyond the scope that you're doing and deliver that to a maximum. I will not start something unless I'm fully satisfied. I will not. I will not have a margin be even an inkling of open. That's going back. You know what I mean? It just won't happen. So it's having the standard that you are going to do everything you can for that patient because you know what? They are difficult. They are demanding. If you told them it was OM1 and that thing looks OM2, you best believe they're going to come tell you. So you when what happens? You got to pay attention to the details. You know, look at it in the lab. Make sure that what you did is what it is. Make sure you're watching every single step because they will come get you at the end. They will make you redo it. It's very demanding when you have patients paying top dollar. It's not easy. However, I will say this. This is also a very interesting concept. I find more friends that go through malpractice suits and all these other problems with insurance patients. Not so much the fee-for-service ones, right? That could go hand-in-hand hand with skill set and what they're getting done, but that's a topic that I see a lot. You know, you're seeing these HMO patients suing some doc because of an MO they did. Come on. So it's just, it, you have to understand that there's good and bads and everything. Like I worked in a Medicaid clinic that I had to get escorted out by the security guards into the car because it was in a really bad neighborhood, you know? It, it just really, really depends. Every aspect of dentistry has its pros and cons, right? So you're seeing fee-for-service patients. Yes, they are going to be demanding. Yes, they expect the world. But a lot of them at that point have a higher dental IQ, though. And if you explain things to them, it's different. Like I, I have CEOs and engineers and, you know, professors. You know, they, they want details. They need that. Some people don't. But you're you're it's a different patient base as far as IQ, as far as dental IQ, what they could understand and et cetera. You you go at a different pace, right? Okay. So yes, the expectation's higher, but it gives you room to explain things better. And I feel like where where people falter, and I want to use this as an example that I was told a long time ago by one of our professors in dental school, 
uh, Dr. Lance, that he told me, if you tell him in the beginning, it's an explanation. If you tell him later at the end, it's an excuse. So as long as you're setting expectations, no matter what insurance or fee for service or whatever you're taking, if you set expectations and you make it truly understandable to that patient and they have no questions for you, you will not have problems. You just need to set expectations for everything that could possibly go wrong or right from the beginning. And that'll help you a long, long way for all those young ones. Bruh, mic drop. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That was yeah. it. You did it, man. I, hey, listen, yeah. that's, that's actually amazing because a lot of people don't understand that kind of nuance. So that's awesome, man. I, honestly, we could keep going forever. Um, yeah, but, bro. Okay. You know what I mean? But we definitely appreciate you. Uh, you know, the funny thing is, I'm not sure if anybody was seeing this, but every time you made a point, it looked like a bubble came up <laughs> on your head. Right? Oh, it, it was reading was like, his, his hand. Job. Uh, <laughs> it was reading his hand motions. Right. Yeah, I know. But it just looked funny because every time he made a good point, I was like, oh, come on. He set it up where the AI was basically like, keep it going. You're telling exactly what we want to hear. That's awesome. <laughs> no, Wait, I, I really appreciate you guys yeah, talking to me tonight. And it was a pleasure meeting all of you guys. Walt, Same here, I buddy. miss you. You know, yeah, bro. you were my boys in yes, school. Sir. I haven't seen you. Robert, excited to see you in a couple months and i just want to let the people know that any questions or any concerns i'm here you could send me a dm uh doctor dot fet uh at dr fetty and instagram and i also have a podcast but i always shout out you brother because you you started this podcast before me and i've been listening to tooth be told for many many years right and right now you've come on multiple times you know you've yeah, come on multiple so. times and and in all honesty if anybody wants to listen to a podcast especially if you're into aesthetics come on man dental talk 360 is, is it you honestly will learn so much because you guys go through great cases and that's something that i personally i mean i i'm, I'm not gonna lie i i actually as a periodontist i love watching the restorative part because i learn more than than a lot of the times when i go to my own conferences so that's mm -hmm. something i highly recommend we got and we got to... brandon mac coming on saturday which oh man to... listen he's got return of the mac <laughs> <laughs> i wanted to use that when he was on our podcast but i didn't get a chance i gotta do that, do he's that gonna now, be at the wedding too so you'll see him there no he's he's excellent man i mean but again you guys all kind of work in the same system and you guys all know each other and and, and just I mean, the, the work you guys do is incredible. Go I think online, that when you, check out when you some of your cases. When you interview docs as passionate as all of us here, we all have a common ground that we all want to be better and we all want to grow and we want to grow this profession because I love this profession, right? I love what I do. We all love what we do, right? And it's seeing us all prosper as, as a unit is what makes me happy. You know, everybody eating everybody doing great work patients getting great outcomes that's what this is all about that's why we went to school oh, i appreciate the uh the enthusiasm and the uh the the respect you have for this uh so it's it's really refreshing to see that so uh, great conversation tonight thank you wow. so much thank you Scott. thank you thank you guys thank you everybody Thanks, all the docs everybody you guys are awesome and i love the podcast i can't wait to hear more more of my long drives to delray beach <laughs> all right guys have a good night man have a good yep. night everyone thank you for listening to this episode of tooth be told the opinions on this episode are just that our opinions please consult your dental professional before taking any action with your dental health 
If you have any questions about anything you heard on this episode, please contact us at Real Dentist with an S. That's R E A L Dentist with an S at gmail.com. We would be very happy to return any message that we receive because we love the communication that we have with our listeners.